this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, we need to talk about the role tradition ought to play in our interpretation of Scripture. Do we need to know anything anyone else has ever said about the Bible in order to be biblically literate? Do we need to self-consciously have a theology when we go to the Bible, or should we try to set all our theological ideas aside and come to the Bible fresh? I'm going to talk to some theologians today, and I, as a New Testament guy who does not disdain theology but was not trained uh, as specifically in it as these theology guys, I want to observe something about my good theologian friends. For them, theology is about a long, long conversation. I'm just going to warn you up front that every one of my guests is going to say in various ways that there's no silver bullet for perfect Bible interpretation. We are not going to land on the thing you must do with theology and tradition in order to be biblically literate. Biblical literacy does, however, involve joining at some level and being able to access the ongoing Christian conversations about the Bible. You cannot and must not read the Bible merely as an individual. Then again, you can't let the community that you're a part of override what the Bible is saying, what God is saying to you through his word. I interviewed my best friend, Brian Collins, Dr. Brian Collins, who wrote his dissertation on themes like those I've just brought up. And then afterwards, I talked with some fellow academic editors here at Faith Life who work for Lexham Press to try to, the technical term is, suss out more insights from this topic that are meant to help you either achieve or promote biblical literacy. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine, delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Dr. Brian Collins, my roommate for four years in grad school, it's really a pleasure to have you on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. And I want you to start by telling people stuff that I already know. Who are you okay. and what do you do? Well, I am, as you said, your former roommate of four years, uh, although I'm now happily married, having been uh, married to my wife longer than I was roommates with you. That's, that's You have a much better roommate I do roommate have a much better now. roommate now. Uh, although it was great in seminary to have a good uh, theological talking partner in the room. Um, yeah. I work for BJU Press. I am a biblical worldview specialist. I, I work on primarily our language arts and our social studies textbooks. And I work in actually planning how those textbooks are created to make sure that baked into those textbooks, into their design, is a Christian worldview. And we yeah. do that by developing what are the big worldview ideas that should show up in this book. And then we tag those with our academic objectives to make sure that the academics of the book and the worldview of the book are all tied together. And then we check an implementation as the writers produce those. And then the other thing that we work on are Bible textbooks. Uh, so I'm working right now on uh, some both elementary and high school level 
uh, Bible textbooks. Fantastic. Yes. And I worked with you for nine years on that work on all of those things. And that was a very enriching time for me. I came to appreciate your God-given gifts in the areas of theology and exegesis. And you and I were both working on our PhDs at the same time. In fact, I was reading the acknowledgments in your dissertation, and I was reminded that I did help you by looking over certain chapters. It's been a number of years now. I picked it up again and in preparation for this interview, and I just really enjoyed what I read. I found it very profitable. Our mutual friend, Andy Nacelli, just combed through your work very carefully, and he posted on his blog a link to get your dissertation. So anybody out there who's interested after this conversation can go there to grab it. Uh, I assume that many in many people in the church, for their part, assume that dissertations are irrelevant to the theme of this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, which is biblical literacy. You know, they might think dissertations live on an academic planet, but I was struck by how very practical your theoretical work is. It really makes a difference. You can see it on the page, and I want to talk through um, some examples to demonstrate that, but we're going to have to kind of lead up to it. So I just want to tee off this first Easy okay. question for you. You wrote about theological interpretation yeah. of Scripture in your dissertation. What is TIS? Okay, well, that's a somewhat difficult question uh, to answer. And the people yeah. that are involved in theological interpretation of Scripture acknowledge us. Kevin Van Hooser, in his Dictionary of Theological Interpretation of the Bible, actually says that initially uh, it's easier to say what theological interpretation is not than to say what it is. Uh, And without having the dissertation open in front of me and having the listing of of the the key components, just just working from from off the top of my head, I I would say that theological interpretation of Scripture is uh, a set of concerns. Uh, These are people that want to ensure that the Bible is relevant for uh, modern man. They've recognized that uh, critical theories of interpretation actually have tended to make the Bible irre- irrelevant, which is actually what Spinoza wanted when he first developed uh, a critical approach to Scripture. But they're they're wanting to, f- to find a way to make the Bible relevant, but they're doing so looking mostly to models uh, like the Church Fathers or in a more of an allegorical approach to Scripture, oftentimes wedded to say a postmodern reader response. Uh, model yeah. and and that's it's hard to it's it's hard to um, to generalize because the theological interpreters this this thing isn't uh, so cohesive to even be a movement like I said it's a set of concerns but what I just said would describe a, a fair number of of people involved in this incohate thing that we would call theological interpretation of scripture. So you have rightly used some academic yeah. jargon some technical terms here, and we're going to unpack some of that, make it more understandable. Let me actually quote your dissertation for you, maybe the portion that you would have turned to if you had it in front of you. You said that theological interpretation maintains two key emphases. First, it holds that exegesis, you know, that is careful study of the scriptural text, exegesis should shape doctrine 
and that doctrine should influence exegesis. And you said, second, it holds that theology is ultimately about faithful living. And I think the way you've put that helps us uh, put this on the ground a little bit, put it where regular people in the church are. Because in a way, as I read that, I thought these points sound so simple. You know, are there truly interpreters of the Bible who don't well, observe that's true. Um, these are very simple things. And I would think that for a lot of people... Uh, those two points are um, a lot of Bible believers who aren't involved in the academic discourse. Those things probably would be thought of as as givens. And those are two aspects of theological interpretation of Scripture that I would uh, fully endorse. I think those are those are real strengths that we need to recover. But in the yeah. academic world, there are people that would keep those things apart. Uh, some some of this has to do with the specialization of the disciplines. So some people are theologians and some people are biblical scholars. And sometimes these disciplines become so fragmented that the theologians really aren't looking at what the biblical scholars are doing. And the biblical scholars aren't really looking at what the theologians are doing. And one of yeah. I think, the commendable things of, uh, in regard to theological interpretation of Scripture is the effort to bring those two things back together. Let's bring exegesis uh, into conversation with theology. Let's bring theology into conversation with exegesis. I have compared reading the Bible to flying up in a hot air balloon and to using a magnifying yeah. glass. And you've got this huh, hermeneutical spiral where you're floating up into that air balloon and then you're going back down and looking at a magnifying glass at the individual trees in the forest, then back up into the hot air balloon to mm -hmm. see the whole forest. And I, I see some parallels here to what you're yes. talking about. Um, and, and therefore, even though we're using some academic terminology like exegesis, people who read the Bible are doing that no matter at what level they're at. They're looking at some individual aspects of a given verse, and then they're also assuming some kind of big view of the Bible. So we might as well name those things and talk about them intelligently and try to talk about their proper yeah. relation. One way you do that is by, in this case, citing D.A. Carson in agreement, you're saying, you said that the narrative aspects of Scripture, the stories, should not be pitted against its propositional aspects. I wanted to ask you, who would do this? And how can a beginner, someone trying to achieve biblical literacy, how can they avoid this pitfall? Right. In fact, I, I also use Carson as a, a model to kind of refine that hermeneutical spiral uh, idea. In, in regard to how we should do theological interpretation of Scripture. And what he provides is, is something that's not just a spiral, but something that has a control line. It starts with exegesis, yeah. and then that moves to biblical theology, and then systematic theology. And he even works in kind of in, in brackets before systematic theology, historical theology. That doesn't play the same kind of controlling role that... Uh, that exegesis and biblical theology and systematic theology play. But what he does, means by that control line is that these things build on one another. But then what he, what he argues is that all of these things also should feed back into the earlier. So you don't do exe, you don't do exegesis apart from biblical, historical, and systematic theology. And you don't do your biblical theology apart from your systematic and your historical theology and so forth. I think that is a real helpful model, and that does help us simplify this. All, all we're asking is that we approach Scripture with this hermeneutical spiral, but one with a control line, one that moves from systematic theology to biblical theology, 
to systematic theology. So, so that in some ways is, is, some, is something that's very simple. Who would challenge uh, these ideas? Who would say, oh, we, you know, we don't want to function with a, with this kind of spiral. Who would say we don't really need, you know, we, that would pit the, the, the propositional versus the story. One person who I, I recall was very critical of the theological interpretation of scripture, I believe was John Barton. And he, he wanted to opt for more historical critical approach. Um, there are also postmodern uh, theologians that would really emphasize the story and downplay the propositions. So those would be two kind of polar opposites. Uh, and a good theological interpretation of scripture, I think we try to, to, to steer between those and say, we need to hold the propositions and the story together. Uh, both of these yeah. things actually are present in the Bible and need to work together. So if God, as you and I both believe ardently, inspired yeah. the Bible and it carries his authority and he inspired the stories as well as the propositions and the commands and the poems and everything else inside the Bible, we would expect not only analysis to be possible, historical analysis, and that's what historical critical exegesis is, you know, describing what the Bible meant in its original context, we, we'd expect not only that to work, we'd expect synthesis to work. And biblical theology and systematic theology are ways, different ways of looking at the entire Bible and asking, how's it, how does it answer certain questions yes. we bring to it? Um, how can we put its entire teaching together? So you'd expect people who believe in that the Bible is inspired to, uh, to believe it's possible that you can put analysis and synthesis together. Now, let, let's talk about, you, you mentioned um, postmodern theories of interpretation. And there again, we're talking about some high academic stuff that I do think actually makes a difference when it comes to uh, regular Christians reading their Bibles because they pick up these ideas such as that we ought to be reading the Bible in community. Talk to me about the two ditches on the side of that road. One, somebody who reads the, the Bible in, in community in an unhealthy way, and then somebody on the other side who reads the Bible solely as an individual. In fact, when I was a kid, I specifically remember thinking to myself, boy, I wish I could have just lived on a desert island and had the Bible all to myself, and therefore I'd have no preconceptions, and I would therefore come to the right interpretation of this. Even as a kid, I was aware of how much tradition was influencing my exegesis, and I thought I should just read the Bible as an individual all on my own. Tell me about those two ditches for interpretation. Yeah, i start with the one that you left off with, uh, the individualistic approach, and that really is an approach that came out of the Enlightenment. It's not really the approach that the church has historically come to the Bible with, but out of the Enlightenment, there was uh, this idea that the individual with his reason could, on his own, uh, better than in community, uh, come to a right understanding of Scripture. And the problem yeah. with that, of course, is that we are all both finite and fallible and sinful. We don't tend to naturally think rightly about what we read in the Bible. And what was really interesting, when you see the fruit of this, and especially, say, early 19th century, maybe even late 18th century America, where we had this strong view of uh, 
democracy and the individual and the common sense of the individual, this bore a lot of bad fruit. I think a lot, if you think of a, a lot of the cults and unorthodox religious groups that emerged, a lot of those emerged in early 19th century America. Why was that? Because a lot of people thought, if I can just read the Bible all on my own, I'll, I'll be able to figure out the right interpretation. And they, they ended up with, with various theological ideas that the church had already worked through and come to some settled doctrine, doctrinal formulations with. And by rejecting those formulations, they had to retread that same ground, and they often went off in, in unorthodox uh, directions with that. I think of one person in particular in the in the dissertation that I mentioned. I think his name was Elihan Winchester, and he decided he was going to lock himself up in his room with his Bible and try to sort out uh, what what to think about it. And he he left his room a Unitarian, not believing in the Trinity. And I contrasted that with Jonathan Edwards, who in one of his resolutions says that he was resolved if and if ever he was to think about another kind of doctrinal way of thinking other than what he had, uh, what he adhered to, that he would go to the wisest and godliest pastors around him, as right as he thought he might have been about that, and gain their counsel about it. And that really yeah. is a healthy view of community, uh, where you look at uh, the community as, as godly, wise believers around you, both living and dead, who can help you in your understanding of scripture, where you're not just standing self-sufficient or attempting to be self-sufficient. Now, where community gets yeah. gets off in a bad direction is that some people, again, this was tied to the a postmodern idea. Some people believe that the community actually sets um, the interpretive guidelines for what's true and what's not. So one community can have their own truth. They have a, they have a set of interpretive guidelines that they've come up with, and they're going to generate one truth. And then another community may generate generate another set of interpretive guidelines, and they're going to have another truth. And that what one community says is true, if it's different from what another community says is true, both of those, they have their own truths, and you can't really judge between those. And that is a problem because that makes the community the highest authority rather than the Bible the highest authority. And God really can't then speak what, it, what truly is true. Uh, to those communities because they've set their own guidelines for what truth would be. I thoroughly enjoyed reading recently Ben Meyer's award-winning Lexham Press book, The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism. I was not raised in a liturgical tradition, so I was only minimally familiar with the creed to my embarrassment and shame. The book was so helpful. It was also punchy and insightful and, above all, short. <laughs> Although I love reading, I really do appreciate writers who don't presume on that love, who guard my time by economy of expression. Uh, ben Meyer's book considers each line of the Apostles' Creed at less than blog post length, but the insights per page quotient in his book is uncommonly high. Myers loves the striking apparent theological paradox, but his paradoxes are not the exhaustingly clever paradoxes of a Chesterton. They, they're genuinely insightful and edifying. They, they feel like discoveries of what's actually in the Christian faith rather than tricksy puns. Here's an example. 
Myers writes, when, when the New Testament writers speak of the ascension, they are not describing Jesus' absence, but his sovereign presence throughout creation. He has not gone away, but has become even more fully present. His ascent to the right hand of the Father is his public enthronement over all worldly power. No scriptural passage is quoted so often in the New Testament as Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is me talking. At, at first, this might sound like double talk. I mean, Christ went away only to become more fully present, but it's so, and the Bible says it's so. Myers reminds his readers that Christ's rule was established through his ascension. Now I'll say transparently that Myers does come from a different tradition than I do and comes to a few conclusions that I don't, but that's kind of why we have an Apostles' Creed to call us back to brass doctrinal tacks. And I was thankful that Myers did this for me. Now, why bother reviewing and praising a book if I felt I had to mention any disagreement whatsoever? It's because I found Myers to be like another Anglican that I love from across a different pond, C.S. Lewis, and that is high praise. Lewis is someone to whom I keep going back for insight, despite Emmeth getting into Aslan's country. Apostles' Creed is a truly delightful little book. I have to give you one more quote. In his last chapter, Myers closes his series of brief meditations with a quote from Gregory of Nazianzus. No mind has yet grasped the creed in all its fullness, just as no one has yet breathed all the air. This is true, but I have breathed much more of that air through the book that Myers wrote, his little elegant volume, The Apostles' Creed. Get it wherever fine books from Lexham Press on The Apostles' Creed are sold. I want us both to try to make this insight practical yep. for people. So, and, and you did that, I think, well with Jonathan Edwards. Now move it to the contemporary okay. present. Let's talk about somebody who is reading the Bible, uh, trying hard to study and understand it. How practically should he or she go about checking with the community uh, to evaluate their Bible Well, everybody should be a part of a local church. Nobody should be just in their living room or in their study, you know, reading the Bible on their own apart from uh, any uh, other input. And the Bible actually says that uh, we've been given uh, pastors and teachers to build up the body. In fact, where that shows up in Ephesians 4, we're actually told that those pastors and teachers equip us so that we're not blown around by every wind of doctrine. And not only do those yeah. pastors and teachers, uh, not only are they the ones that equip us, but they, they equip the whole body to speak the truth to one another. So as members are formed up by the preaching and the teaching of the word through these people that have been gifted to the body, the body itself grows in its ability to speak truth to one another. And so we should uh, be attending uh, regular worship where the word is preached faithfully and when and then we should be speaking to other people in our assembly about uh what we've been reading and studying in the, in the word and allow them to challenge us uh allow us then um as as we've been equipped to, to challenge them and their thinking the other thing that comes yeah. to mind in terms of uh living in a in community I, if this may sound odd but say living in community with the dead I think Alan Jacobs has talked about writing a book called Breaking Bread with the Dead. And the idea is there are people that are dead, but they left us writings. And the dead are not infallible. Those great Christians that have gone before us and have left writings, they're not infallible. But C.S. Lewis has pointed out they lived in a different time from us. They thought differently from us. 
And it may be that the errors of their time are more evident uh, to us than the errors of our own. So we can spot the errors, but maybe spot also the good that they've left. And there's a whole lot of good that uh, people from the past have uh, written that can uh, really guide us. Again, I mentioned the earlier the the heresies, the, the cults that sprang up in early 19th century America. If people had listened to or read some of the earlier creeds and confessions and taken seriously the doctrinal formations that had been developed, they would have been spared from, from heresy in the future. I personally have enjoyed using the ancient Christian commentary mm. on Scripture, which acquaints me with the exegetical comments and often theological comments of the early church fathers, um, and then uh, also the Reformation commentary on Scripture, which does something similar, just zooming up a number of hundreds of years. And yet, when I look at those commentators, and then when I look at contemporary commentators, I feel uh, some real sympathy for someone who says, hey, I'm trying to be yeah. biblically literate. I am trying to be humble before the, you know, my own local church yeah. community of Bible uh, interpreters and before my pastor, and I'm trying to take in the good from all of the living and dead teachers that there are. And now the internet and Logos Bible software make that, you know, relatively easy and inexpensive, but I feel yeah. confused by all the different denominations and their attendant perspectives. You know, if you if you say, as you do, that tradition is not inherently bad, you know, we, as you listen to your community, you are going to develop together a tradition that you're going to try to hand down to your children. You're, you are the recipient yes. of a tradition. But then, then the more mature you get, the more you look out and see there's other traditions. How can I sort through, you know, the those even orthodox traditions that are available right. out there. You know, there's different views of tradition uh, that people have. And I found this helpful uh, when, when writing the dissertation to discover that these, these different views can be categorized. In, in the very earliest part of the church, uh, there was the idea that tradition uh, was the same thing as scripture. It was just scripture rightly interpreted. And you can imagine if there are people that lived in the earliest days of the church and they heard the Apostle John teach or the Apostle Peter teach, and they could say, but John interpreted this part of the scripture this way. You could see how people would say, oh, you know, here's tradition. It's the way that the apostles taught the Bible. And that really helped them argue against uh, the Gnostics, people that had a heretical approach to the scriptures. And they could say, some of these early church fathers could say, no one in the church has ever interpreted the Bible this way. The yep. problem with that was very early on, you you lose contact with the apostles. Generations move on and people don't always remember accurately or you know, certain things that were thought to be taught by the apostles, we were, were pretty certain were not taught. Uh, by them. And, and so that ended up not being a reliable authority. Uh, that tradition ended up not being a re reliable authority for long. And then there was a, uh, a idea of tradition that's called the supplementary view of tradition. And it was the idea that some of this oral tradition that was passed down was different from scripture, a supplement of scripture. And it added to scripture, but was as authoritative of scripture. And that developed throughout the Middle Ages. And that's one of the things that the reformers uh, really spoke against. And, and that's what they recovered when they recovered Sola Scriptura. 
Reformers had a different view. They had what they called an ancillary view of tradition. Tradition doesn't isn't an authority. Only the Bible is is the ultimate authority. For tradition is really helpful. And I don't know that I have a silver bullet answer to your question, but knowing those categories and recognizing that tradition is a help. It's not the authority that stands over scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority. And encouraging people to dig into their Bibles, but to dig into their Bibles by using the help of what other people have done before them. Um, I, that would be my counsel. Uh, most people are already within a specific church tradition and, you know, they, they, they may be in a church tradition that's unreliable and they may be, as they're studying their Bible, figuring that out. But if they're in a good historically orthodox church tradition, uh, that will, that will help them place some, some guidance on, on them as they interpret the scripture. Now, I was your roommate, and I watched you study the Bible very carefully. Your diligence was an example to me, and I've appreciated our friendship over these many years. I know that you spent years immersed in the Bible and in reading many, 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 many books. We just had a joke when we were roommates that if I ever got a book and set it on my desk and had to run off to dinner, like by the time I got back from dinner, you'd already read it. And like, I never read a book before you did. It's just not fair. And I think that's still true. You spent years immersed in this topic, the theological interpretation of Scripture. You have taken advantage of teachers of the past and of the present very often. Uh, can you tell me about one time in which your private reading of the Bible was enriched by the categories provided by your study of this topic of the theological interpretation of Scripture? So I'm, I'm thinking now about after you know after I've done the study and after I've wrote the dissertation. I, I did a Sunday school series on uh, the Beatitudes. And when I did that series, one of the things I was able to do uh, that I don't think I would have done if I hadn't wrote the dissertation was actually begin with the church fathers, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, they both wrote commentaries on the Beatitudes, and then work my way up through church history, through um, the Reformation, through the post-Reformation, up into the modern period. And that gave me a good view of the variety of interpretive approaches to the Beatitudes throughout history and how they gave me options as I was, as I was weighing the right interpretation. I was seeing through history, okay, these are the different interpretive positions that people have taken. And then now in the light of the scripture, as I'm exegeting it, I can do so knowing the full range of the options that historically Orthodox people have taken. So I would say that would be helpful. That was helpful. If I can move back before the dissertation, I'll give another example. Uh, so I wasn't maybe thinking in all these same categories, but I was recognizing that I needed to interpret the Bible with my theology in mind. And I had a passage of scripture that was really uh, maybe a bit puzzling to me. And that was uh, Paul's use of allegory in uh, Galatians, where he, he refers to Hagar and Sarah allegorically. And I remember asking a professor once, you know, you tell us that we aren't supposed to interpret the Bible allegorically. And here is Paul interpreting the Bible allegorically. And he said, well, he says, Paul could do things as someone who is inspired that we can't do because we're not inspired. And I found that really dissatisfying because I thought, you know, Paul should 
be able to serve as a model for me and how I interpret the Bible. And I was studying uh, the book of Genesis just on my own, uh, going through seminary, and I came to the part about um, Abraham taking Hagar as a second wife, I believe uh, Genesis 16. And it struck me as I was reading that, that one of the, one of the points of Genesis in the Abraham narrative is, is all about Abraham's faith and his faith in God's promises. And that what's going on with the Hagar situation is Abraham, he's believing God's promises. He wouldn't be trying to have a son if he wasn't believing God's promises. But he was mixing that with his own efforts to try to bring those promises about in a way that God had not authorized. And that's precisely what the Galatians were doing. They had uh, mixed their own efforts with their faith in a way, in an attempt to achieve uh, God's promises. And so when Paul uses that example, uh, figuratively or even we could say allegorically, the, the word there doesn't necessarily mean allegory. Figurative would be another good translation of that word. When he does that, he's he's not wresting that passage out of its context and, and, and misusing it some way. He's actually captured the main theological point that Genesis has, and he's applying it to his own situation. Uh, so that's, that's another example of how a, a reading of scripture with being aware of the theological impact and import of it across the canon can be helpful. I want to end and thank you for your time, Dr. Collins, with a question I think has been on the lips of many individual Bible readers. Should I read the Bible like any other book? I'm going to answer that yes and no. There's not a, a secret key somewhere to the Bible that if I can, if I can break the key or break the code, then I read my Bible in this special language and I, I now understand what nobody else uh, could ever see. The Bible is written in normal language and use all the same kind of normal tools that you would use in interpreting narratives and poetry and, and so forth. But there's a no. Uh, it's not the Bible's not like any other book. The Bible is uh, a book that's uh, divinely breathed out by God, and as such, it has uh, it hangs together as a unity, and it has uh, theolog theological truths that run across the Bible uh, in ways that uh, would would make us approach this book differently than any other book. It actually has an authority that no other book has for us. I would answer that question with a, with a yes and a no. Well, that's what makes you a theologian. Uh, sick oh, yeah. at non. Wasn't that Abelard wrote a whole yeah. book? Yes and no. He was talking about something a little different, but uh, a good theologian is someone who sees hidden in a question the, the competing values there. Once again, I'm so totally with you. I appreciate your work. I have found it personally beneficial when I do my own exegesis, in large part because of our discussions and my reading of your dissertation, I am keeping a firmer hold on synthesis, on theology, when I read individual portions uh, of Scripture. And I hope and I pray that the result of your work is that more and more readers of Scripture will be doing the same thing. Right now, the Lord is using you as something of a research professor at a Christian publisher, and I really couldn't be more thrilled. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the Bible Study Magazine Thank podcast. You. I really enjoyed our conversation.
let's move over to the studio and talk with our guests, have a little discussion about what we just heard. Todd Haynes is with me. He's PhD ABD in historical theology, and he just opened a fresca. I hope you heard that from, uh, I don't know how he's drinking and I can't ask him. Okay, I know it's from Ted's. Derek Brown, PhD in New Testament from? University of Edinburgh in wonderful gray, rainy Scotland. And Brandon Ellis, PhD in the art of manliness, I think it was. You, you tell us. PhD in beard studies from the art of manliness. Did John Webster didn't have a beard? No, he didn't. Mm. It's one of the only reasons why he'd accept me as a, uh, a supervisee. Well, if you know John Webster, then you're guessing where he went. But tell us, Brandon. University of Aberdeen, also in Scotland, even further north, even grayer, even rainier. And the formal subject of your degree program. Divinity. Our theme is biblical literacy for the first season of the BSM podcast. I want to toss this out there for you guys. How much do you have to know about and access the traditions of the historic Christian church in order to be biblically literate? Well, we got to say what tradition is. That's where it all starts. Heiko Oberman has his tradition one and tradition two. That's one attempt to define it. Brian, my friend, Dr. Collins mentioned another sort of model. What what would you guys say? Well, so tradition one and tradition two, Obermann is still getting at the relationship between, he, he's distinguishing traditions even there because he'll say Bible and tradition, but the Bible is a tradition. And that's something that I see Protestants in particular, they have trouble. So I've sat in a lot of adult eds where I'll say something about the tradition and people are like, oh, but Jesus, he says bad things about the tradition. Um, but Jesus is making distinctions. He's making distinctions between, you know, human tradition and then the tradition of prophecy that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we still see that in, in the New Testament. Paul uses this language of handed down. And uh, there's a book that I'm not thinking of that talks about this very well. But I was thinking about that when your, your friend, I think it's when he was talking about the tradition as as being the apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament. And he said, we've lost contact with that. Apostolic tradition. Yeah. yeah. But so he was, oper- I mean, it would be interesting to talk with him more about this. So uh, you see this often in American Christianity that when we say apostolic, folks say, oh, well, it's the 12 apostles. But the tradition of the Christian church doesn't say that that's what apostolic is. The tradition of the Christian church says apostolic is whatever preaches Christ. So we haven't lost contact with that. I think there's violent agreement there. Violent agreement being, I think we're agreeing, but it sounds like we're not agreeing. But I think that's the first piece that has to come in with these kind of conversations is that the Bible itself is a tradition. So can I maybe give a little framing? So I think, you know, one of the things we talk about theological interpretation of scripture, when we, this is a peculiar problem, if you will, of modern biblical studies. So to give it just a a big overview, right? You, you think of, say, J.P. Gabler is probably the, the father of modern biblical studies. And one of the things that he uh, sort of, he um, famously advocated was Back to- in the 18th century. Yeah. To separate the, the course of study of biblical and theological work into two stages. And so where your interpretation of the Bible, right, is your first stage- and your interpretation of or your construction, your history, your explanation, your application of theology is the second separate stage on the basis of that interpretation. Now, the fear that he was partly reacting or partly working from, I think, is a is a healthy fear of treating scripture like a wax nose. 
um, that, you know, if you've already drawn your conclusions about what Scripture must be saying, then you can do whatever you want with any given passage and you can, you know, and it's the sort of the 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 bad version of allegorizing. Tradition overrules Scripture in this case. Or or your own pet, whatever you want Even to say. Even your idiosyncratic tradition, your tradition. So, but there are problems. There are two main I think fundamental problems with this that we've been wrestling with ever since. The first one is um, you are operating as if there's no rule of faith. Um, and that's the apostolic tradition that Todd is describing, right? And that I think Brian was getting at as well is that it's this, it's the, it's, you might be able to put it like the way the apostles read the Bible and the way they taught what the whole story was about. And so Irenaeus and Tertullian, you know, we have a lot of early church fathers that are uh, origin that are giving this rule more or less in the same way, but they had the rule and they were not separating it. They were, they were not saying the rule is the Bible, but they weren't saying that it was something other than the Bible either. It's the Bible's own way of saying, here's how you should interpret me faithfully. Second, so we lose the rule when we do a two-stage process and we make theology second. The, the, the second major problem with that is we operate as if the Holy Spirit is not both the one who superintends the writing as well as the hearing. Yeah, he'll lead word. you into all truth. Right. So here's the here's the issue with those two problems. There's always a theological agenda going on in any biblical interpretation. Scripture interpretation is always theological. The question is, whose theological agenda is it? And if you've replaced the rule of faith and the Holy Spirit with something else, what have you replaced it with? Well, you've re your new rule is your reason or your experience or some sort of absolute human authority. And so let me try to uh, connect what you said to what I asked and therefore to the theme of the first season, biblical literacy, what I think you're saying. And actually, I've heard this answer on several different topics uh, that we've discussed here on the podcast. I think you're saying that everybody comes to the Bible with assumptions and an agenda and a tradition, whether they know it or not. And so the reason it is an essential aspect of biblical literacy to reflect in some measure upon what the church has said in the past is that otherwise you might fool yourself into thinking that you don't have a tradition and that you're coming to this straight and fresh without anybody influencing you uh, in a malign way. Absolutely. Even if you're doing on purpose theological interpretation of scripture. Mm -hmm. I mean, what if your theological interpretation of scripture is non-Trinitarian? That's well, bad. you're doing it on purpose and you're coming to scripture theologically, but it's bad theology. <laughs> and so you still have the same dangers that Gabler faced if you just say, okay, well, what we need to do is found a right method, you know, and we come up with that, right? And then as long as we read the Bible consistently with that, we're doing good theological interpretation of scripture. I think um, one of the things that Brian is getting at is that part of reading in the community of historic orthodoxy is saying you can't just pick any old theological interpretation. Theology in the sense of good theology, in the sense of faithful theology is absolutely crucial. We've got several folks here. Well, all of us who've worked in various ways with Lexham Press. Brandon, who's just been talking, was the head and is still now the head. And it's kind of confusing. I can't explain it right now. But uh, Derek and Todd and I are all academic editors at Lexham Press. And one of the things that we're continuing to work on is the evangelical um, exegetical commentary series. We've actually sat down and helped authors write commentaries. And we care about commentaries. We use commentaries. One of the things that frustrates me about commentaries 
is that they so frequently operate in only one of those modes that Gabler was talking about in this pretended objective descriptive mode as if theology has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. And I, as a preacher of the word, trying to shepherd souls, I'm looking for some help. How do I connect this with the rest of the Bible? And I'm frequently frustrated. Has anyone else had that same experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they just repeat the same thing. There's still, I remember with the Reformation commentary on Acts, I looked at, I don't know, four or five modern Acts commentaries, and there was one, I won't say which, that it was just quoting the other three big ones. And it's like, why, why is it, why is this even being published? One of the uh, things I was told in seminary is that uh, an irony, a, a huge irony of this whole project of, well, if we could just separate biblical interpretation out from the later sort of dogma and theology and application in the church, we can get to the objective truth of what the Bible's really about for all time. And the supreme irony is that what was happening the whole all along was that these folks always look down the well and they see their own reflection mm-hmm. and Schweitzer image and their their interpretations are right in the moment of whatever the passing fad is. And people are still reading the commentaries of Augustine and Aquinas Calvin. and Calvin and Luther and, and Spurgeon and all these folks who were so subjective and so beholden to the the theological program of the moment, supposedly, and yet they're still relevant and fruitful. And these other things that are attempting to be objective and timeless are so arid in comparison most of the time. Derek, you and I are New Testament guys. We're sitting with some theology guys. I want to ask you, um, Brian said, my friend, the dead are not infallible, but the errors of their time, this is a very C.S. Lewis type point, aren't the same as our own. So I wonder, NT guy, what have the dead taught you? Ooh, good question. I like to think of myself as biblical studies now. I'm just going to like wipe off the New Testament part because really, I mean, the Old Testament is, finds its fulfillment in the new. And I think uh, we shall be good handlers of the whole text because I talk about sort of partitioning things out, biblical studies from theology and stuff but also New Testament. Yeah, there's Testament. a similar problem danger. there. So, Well, you know what? Concordia, the Concordias, St. Louis and Fort Wayne, they call your position professor of exegetical theology. That, that a, sounds nice. It's a great mm-hmm. way forward. I mean, even if it's just in name, I think it's a good good way forward. Uh, the dead guys, they're great. Todd loves the dead guys. He loves that phrase. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I actually, having written on Paul, I actually would include Paul in that as well. Um, they, they provide a great model for those of us in the modern world who are tempted, who have been in the academy to read scripture kind of um, in this way where it is a quest for objective truth apart from our own lives. Yeah, bloodlessly. Bloodlessly, absolutely. And as though that there's some sort of uh, rainbow or a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Let's find the original meaning, but it's um, we've never talked about what, what are we going to do when we get there? But that's just the goal in and of itself. Like it's intrinsic search quest. It's like a holy grail, but we're not actually going to believe anything when we get there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can't read Paul or any dead guy and realize that they read scripture as scripture. God's word. God's word. And I say it's a living text. They absolutely believed that God was speaking to them and to the church in that text and that it was authoritative for their lives. Now it sounds a bit cliche and a bit obvious. Um, but studying Paul very slowly and painstakingly when I was writing my dissertation, um, 
that's what you come away with. And it kind of wakes you up to realize that sometimes if you're not careful, reading or studying scripture can become a game. And that might be the most dangerous version because you've absolved yourself from its implications and, and sort of divorce yourself from what it's asking of you. Yeah, and, and then you're picking up a new tradition, the academic tradition, which has its own agenda in treating the Bible. I was just reading some articles on linguistics that were doing a good job, I guess, summing up debates and discussions in linguistics, but bloodless was the word for them. It, it was as if the writer was trying to put him or herself behind a curtain and there was no personality that that person didn't take any view. He or she was just reporting. And I have a sense of holy dread when I see people treat the Bible that way because God's address is here. How can you possibly set yourself aside, be objective here when the judge of your eternal soul is talking? H.L. Mencken said that Theology is the effort to explain the unknowable in terms of the not worth knowing. He's somebody who's critiquing that very same spirit he saw in his day. And that's my favorite definition of theology because it just boils my blood and it makes me passionate and it makes me want to never do that and say, why do we talk about God and his ways with the world as if we're filling out an insurance form? Yeah. And it's so easy to do in this Ultimately, in this way that I mean, it not to get too you know psychologizing about it, but it's it's our own insecurities, our own you know lack of confidence, you know humble confidence in God and His Word and His purposes and everything that we're trying to prove ourselves to some invisible someone who's looking over our shoulder, evaluating whether we're you know um, objective enough or. Uh, you know, whether we're clever enough. And uh, and when you read Paul, you realize that he was, not only was he not subject to that sort of, you know, people pleasing, but that he was actively urging and cajoling his his readers through the way he wrote and what he said to abandon that sort of self-justifying project entirely. <laughs> well, think about, you know, it's funny. We were talking about the this is making me think Paul talking, imagining him talking to his, his hearers. And can you imagine sitting there being like, Oh, that's a, a present active participle. The third person masculine. That's a theologian mocking exegetes. Yeah, it is. Right but there. can you, like no one reads, like no one reads anything that like is that true. or listens to anything yeah. like that. And so that's where in a lot of ways where folks are like, well, we should at least read the Bible just like any other book. But then this method, actually, we don't read anything like that. I, I think what I think one of the things that we have to really guard against is um, this sense that we we can somehow step outside of being under. We, we can step out from under the word mm. when we're hearing the word, and if you hear very carefully in submission and in sort of like this is this is god speaking through down through the ages and like you know poking me in the chest then you can listen as carefully and thoughtfully and chew it chew on it over and over as you want but as soon as you step out from under it and go now did god really say yeah who who asked that question first you used words like this brandon it was brandon just talking people who lack humble confidence in in um 
while they read the Bible, people who step out from under God's authority, people who are people-pleasing in their Bible interpretation. Those three so things— So all of us. Well, <laughs> yes. And then we're, we're therefore confessing what I would call sin, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, let's name those things for what they are. Does that mean that there are Bible interpreters who are actually sinning in the way that they interpret Scripture? Oof. So I, I think that I, I would do what— I think Jesus does here very well, which is really strongly separate out sort of, you know, regular folks who are just trying to read their Bible well and and people who are like who, who are presenting themselves as teachers, teachers of the church. And I think that we need to take James seriously when he says, you know, that not many of us should try to become teachers, right? Because we'll be judged with a stricter judgment. Right. And so I think one of the things that's going on with the teachers are all of those sorts of things, which is why I said all of us, because we're all people who are well-trained and we are, you know, presuming to be teachers. And, and so I think we need to be careful with that. People in that situation are different than most folks who are just trying to like, you know, really take God's word seriously and really wrestle with it. And they struggle with a lot of intimidation. They struggle with a lot of feelings of inadequacy just like we do, but this is in a situation where you're also more vulnerable because the the imbalance of knowledge and, and insight and power and everything is is that much greater. I think in that scenario, it's not so much these people are are in sin because, you know, they're they're, you know, not reading the Bible appropriately. It's more like a desperate need for concerted mentoring and discipleship. Like to do theological interpretation of scripture well. Like we really need to teach people how to reason theologically, how to render faith or, or make faithful judgments and applications um, from scripture and from Christian teaching. Um, that's it's just it, we're so used to thinking of, of discipleship theologically, the theological aspects of discipleship or the Bible aspects of discipleship as information impartation, you know, like. Any of us in this room have for years been able to be in a position to say, give me the gist of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity or give me the gist of the, you know, evangelical account of the gospel. But I would say that, like, we would take pause for a while and have to think through carefully if someone said, tell me why if there's no Trinity, there's no gospel. That's the sort of thing that Augustine or, you know, any of these sort of like the, in the history of the church, these are the sort of connections that were really natural for someone who was theologically trained because you were working with regular people. It wasn't all about showing off or, you know, having all your all your specific ducks in a row so much as being a really skilled handler of God's word. And, re- and a really good kind of physician of souls. Because you didn't have theologians who were merely working in the academy. They were always working in the church. They were employed by the church. Until, what's his name, in Geneva? Oh, I'm not going to... Th- Deneau. Lambert. Deneau. Lambert Deneau. Which I think is funny because at TED's we have an Australian that that's, he's writing on. And he's like, yeah, he has the distinction of being the first theology professor that's not a pastor. And the way that an Australian says Deneau, as in don't know sounds like Lambert don't know I wouldn't put it on Dano he uh he was pretty solid man I don't want to wrap this conversation up but Dr. Collins my friend said that we shouldn't be individualistic Bible interpreters because we are finite fallible and sinful 
he talked about that ditch in the uh, in the interpretive road. Um, but there's another ditch I, uh, on the other side of people who are too wrapped up in community, I guess, therefore letting their tradition, whatever it is, override what God is actually saying. This is starting to sound like a confusing question, but I just want you to weigh in on where you've seen in your own reading or in others' reading of the Bible, people falling into one of those two ditches, the individualistic or the communitarian. Which ditch? Which ditch? From one to the other. We just jump back and forth. Um, I think we, uh, they're there. I think at different points in our lives, we can, we're probably uh, more vulnerable or close to sort of the precipice of those ditches. I think for someone who's spent a lot of time in the academy reading, the danger is that individual reading, um, <clears throat> largely because you're tempted to that a right reading is one of your own certitude, which is incredibly, Todd and I were just talking about this. Yesterday. Yesterday. Um, you can often confuse what you confess, what you think you're confessing is truth is just what you have a high degree or the most or the highest degree of certitude about. So that you, what you think you believe in is just what you think is most right, which might be the, I don't know, the height of human arrogance uh, uh, when it comes to knowledge. Now, I think in the evangelical world, the danger is the over communal reading sometimes that are, or, 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 sorry, let me say it the other way, the individual, and they can't stray far enough right now to a more communal reading. I think it's becoming a little more in vogue in a lot of churches that I see evangelical churches starting to embrace, um, the apostles creed, even treating the, the Lord's prayer is not as, a, you know, something they just read or, or pray in their own time, but something they do communally. That's creeping into liturgy, which is great if <clears throat> evangelicals are willing to say they have liturgy. And uh, so from, from myself, I see the t- temptation is to over-individual reading because of probably the nature of my vocation and what I've done. But I think a lot of people get wrapped up in what they think the, o- the only thing that matters for their lives and their faith is what they individually believe and confess. What, but really, you know, we're not on islands reading the Bible by ourselves. Go back to your point. So what you're saying, I mean, I was going to ask at some point, we kind of got away from it just like theologians tend to do, but I was going to ask for practical direction and you just gave one. Just use an ancient creed, which we all still believe. You know, we read it as evangelicals and see, well, yeah, I believe all that stuff. Okay, maybe a descent into hell. We'll have to talk about that in another podcast. But but that, that alone is a way of saying we're not the only people who've ever read the Bible and believe this stuff. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the, just to pan out from this whole conversation, what's going on and, and your conversation got, got at that um, is that scripture for the vast majority of history, and I would say rightly so, has belonged to the church first and foremost. Not to and, the academy. And, and I'm not going to say that it doesn't. I love the academy. I love, you know, I've studied at secular universities and I love what I've got there, but it has a certain role. And, it, and I would say scripture does not belong primarily mm-hmm. to the academy. And the, I think the most faithful way and tool for everyone to do that is to confess that presuppositionally <laughs> to start from, start with our reading eating and our interpretation of scripture with the things that have been, as, mm-hmm. as Todd reminded us, that Paul says, handed down paradosis to us, which are the teachings of the apostles. And, and, and yeah. later it becomes the creeds and, the, and certain things like in scripture, like the Lord's Prayer, that have come to us. Those are foundational. And I think from there you go forward and, and 
create a context and a foundation in which you can faithfully read scripture. And I would wager, unless you have a pretty hardened heart or a lot of arrogance, it's pretty hard to stray from a faithful reading of scripture. Oh, that's, it's, it's David Trobish. Is the, that's the author I was trying to think of. But the interesting thing about those paradosis passages is Paul doesn't say what has been handed down. He's just the stuff that I gave you. Well, you first Corinthians 15, he does a little sure. bit. Sure. Right, right. And then Galatians 1.8, he says, even if an angel, and I know of certain uh, traditional folk, Luther, he heightens that. that He says, even if Jesus came and said something to you counter than the gospel, don't believe it. Because Satan can appear as an angel right. of light. That's part of what yep. he's getting at. But so, so, or what we were talking about earlier about, can you interpret the Bible in a way that's sinful? And what Brandon was getting at is the whole Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. The two disciples are in sin because they don't believe the resurrection. They don't believe what Jesus said Jesus about himself. Jesus rebukes them for their yep. little faith. He does. But he he does still kindly Very to the gently. two. Yeah. And then he goes and he's like, hey, this is what the Bible's all about. And if you go and you look at any, any, any old commentary there, they all will be like, Jesus, why didn't you tell us? Like, Luke, why didn't you write down what Jesus said? Then we wouldn't have to argue. So all of them will kind of reinvent. What, so uh, Erasmus in his commentary is actually quite, quite long. But uh, anyway, what I was thinking about that is, is this is the, diff- the two ditches, in my opinion. Is It's not individual or communal. It's healthy or unhealthy. And we're always reading the Bible with other people, whether they're there with us or not. It's like this... Chester Winfield or whatever. No, it's a funny name. Anyway, Chester Whipplefield, we'll say. I don't think that's it. But he he walks away reading the Bible and he comes away as a Unitarian. But he was reading it in communion with reason, with the worldly mm-hmm. reason. That's mm-hmm. what he does. Folks today, that if they read the Bible, they're like, well, why on the earth would you think one, one essence, three persons? Like, of course you wouldn't think that. Well, of course you would say that because you're reading it with the world. So... There's yeah, you're that. always reading with someone. Yeah. yeah. So we want a healthy reading, and that's what we read with, I believe, in the communion of saints, the church. So I would say alongside that practical application to kind of piggyback on the creed. Um, and to the, land the plane. And one of the things that, so in my church every week, we do uh, the creed right after the sermon. And we do we do the Lord's Prayer during, at the end of the congregational prayer, but we do the creed right after the sermon. And the reason we do that is because we've just heard the preaching of God's word. And now we're all confessing together with the, you know, not only with one another, but with the whole communion of saints, we're now confessing, not just a summary of our faith, but we're confessing a summary of, and we've explained this at church, we are confessing a summary of of the faithful response to how to receive and understand that word. And so it's not just a bullet pointed list of the things that I need to tick off, you know, in order to be, you know, lowercase c Catholic. It's the way I now go and read my Bible according to the way the Bible itself tells me to read it. And so when, you, when I hear, you know, the pastor was talking about, you know, Jesus dying for our sins during the sermon, and I hear, and I now say with everyone else in the creed, you know, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, right? I can, I can you know, connect the way that, you know, everybody who has, who's blessed with a pastor who knows how to, you know, rightly interpret and apply the word is always thinking, wow, that was amazing. 
I don't know how they got that from from this. They look down at the passage and they're like, that was I know that was right. You know, that really resonates. I don't know how to do that. Well, it's, you know, one really practical way is read the Bible through the creed. And you're reading the Bible the way the Bible itself is shaped. Well, and that's the the way that the that the church has talked about that in the past, isn't? So today, when we talk about rule of faith and uh, theological interpretation, often folks will say, "Oh, that means reading through it, it, roughly the creed." And there are all mm-hmm. sorts of academic academization, stuff about this that, like, "Oh, well, it's not really just these words." But the way that the church handled this is, they said, "No, we're going to tell you the exact words." The rule of faith is Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, and Baptism, Communion, Absolution. They're saying these are the very things. And so they're they're saying memorize these words, get to know these words so intimately so that you know the content behind them. And then you can find new ways to say that content, but that if you go and use those things, you, you can land in any piece of church history and you see great pastors doing this. Augustine has a book. That's based on this Luther's small catechism structured after this. He got that from the medievals, Calvin Calvin's institutes, yeah, yeah. institutes. It's just a wonderful way. And it, so it, it does a good job of the, the magnifying glass where you go in and then you go out and it holds it all together because we can't, we can't just hold the Bible, all those words. It, it, it's just too much to look at it once we're finite and we need to have something to hold on to. We're finite. And so is the amount of time we have for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Great segue. It's my job to come up with something, and I was really stretching. Thank you, Brandon, Derek, Todd, for coming on the podcast. That was a fruitful and interesting discussion. Thank you. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step through your Bible study. Notes and highlights, powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com fundamentals. You've just heard the Bible Study Magazine podcast, where it is traditional for me to say our producer is Kaylee Joyce, our audio technicians are Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood, and I'm your host, Mark Ward, PhD. And let me talk about that D for precisely eight seconds. Traditionally, a doctor was simply a teacher. And if we do have the example of Jesus, who is called teacher, and if we do have the teaching of Paul, who said that Christ gives teachers to his church to serve and strengthen them, then it's appropriate for me to say that was our goal today on the BSM podcast. Grow roots into your Bible by careful reading of it, along with those who have read it before and are reading it with you now.